Good morning, and thank you. Um, I'm going to start with a surprise. What do you think was the wisest thing an Australian Prime Minister ever said about his country in war? And who was the Prime Minister who said it? It's hard to believe that an Australian Prime Minister would have something sensible to say about almost anything. Um, but this was, in fact, said by a Prime Minister who became better as he got older um, after he left office, in my view. And that, of course, is Malcolm Fraser, um, who became a great Australian, if he wasn't a great Australian, when he became Prime Minister. And he said in a book review a few years ago that Australia should never take part in war again unless we have a guaranteed seat at the table where the strategy is determined. And if that isn't the wisest thing an Australian Prime Minister has said about war, I don't know what could beat it. The situation for Andrew Fisher, as, as Nat has already said, was so far removed from that piece of wisdom as to be ridiculous. Andrew Fisher knew no more about the course of the war in which he had, to which he had sent Australian troops than an ordinary reader of an Australian newspaper. He had no prior briefing to the incursion of the Anzacs, as they came to be called, uh, at Gallipoli, and he had no participation whatsoever in the decisions taken in London for that uh, strategy that was developing largely by Winston Churchill. He had nothing to say about the size of the army that would invade Turkey or its composition. He had nothing to say at all about the new word, Anzac, uh, that came into use. And all of this lack of knowledge clearly and properly bothered him to the extent that he resigned the office of Prime Minister, largely, I suspect, and so does his biographer David Day, because of ill health caused by his concern for the troops that were fighting in the name of Australia, over which he had no influence whatsoever. So Fisher decided that he would find out for himself what was going on. His preference would have been to have gone to Gallipoli personally, but he knew this was not possible or uh, appropriate. Why he didn't ask Charles Bean for an intimate update and account, I don't know. And that'll be a question I'll be putting to, to Peter Rees later on today, the biographer of Charles Bean, and he probably has an answer. Perhaps it's because um, he, he didn't quite trust Bean, I'm not sure. But it would have seemed the logical thing to do. But instead, he asked his good friend, Keith Murdoch, who Nat has introduced to you as a young, ambitious uh, and very uh, successful journalist. He asked him, uh, Keith Murdoch was taking a position in London as the head of the cable service to Australia. Murdoch, by the way, agonised as to whether his responsibility was to enlist in the AIF and he asked plenty of people for advice. And Fisher said to him, no, that is not your responsibility. You will do far better work for Australia as a journalist than you would do as a soldier. I think it was good advice. Um, but he asked Murdoch 
to go, who was going to London, to stop off uh, and look around the peninsula for himself and then report back to Fisher his uh, understandings of the circumstances there. And they invented a fable that Murdoch was in fact investigating um, the uh, provision of uh, mail services to the Australian soldiers. Uh, and uh, so off Murdoch went. Uh, wh when he got to Gallipoli, uh, Murdoch was um, expecting to be closely supervised and escorted by Charles Bean. Um, Murdoch had come second in the ballot to Bean, the ballot that was taken by the Australian Journalists Association to, to find the official correspondent. Bean won that ballot, but only, I believe, by four votes above Murdoch, which was an excellent result for Murdoch, as he was so much younger uh, than the other journalists in the, uh, in the, in the ballot. Uh, and although he was in the parliamentary press gallery in Melbourne, uh, he had not been working as a journalist for a long time in Melbourne. In fact, he'd spent most of his uh, formative time as a stringer for the Melbourne Age, writing on that uh, extremely exciting uh, area of Melbourne, Malvern. So if you could find stories of the age in Malvern, you were really a journalist of quite considerable uh, achievement. And he was only paid by the line. And then he went to London. One of the things that you need to know about Murdoch is that he had a, uh, a disability. He had an appalling stutter or stammer. So much so that even as a journalist in Melbourne, uh, he would write a note, return ticket to Melbourne, please, and hand the note to the, sale, the ticket uh, person at the station, the Camberwell station, for his train to Melbourne. He couldn't get the words out. And when he went to London, he, um, he listened to courses at the London School of Economics. Wouldn't it be fascinating to think that Rupert might want to do that one day? <laughs> Listening in, an auditor, not getting a degree, but just learning something. Well, that's what his father did, Keith, and um, he tried desperately hard to get a, a job on a London journal or paper or magazine. And he got to interview stage because he was well supported um, by the Symes from Melbourne. But when he went for interview, he couldn't speak. I don't know whether you've ever had the experience of interviewing a candidate for a job who can't speak, but it would be... Oh, well, oh, I interviewed Anne-Marie for a job once, so... <laughs> but I actually think she, I think she did actually... Uh, she must have spoken very good sense because um, she got the job, and that was the start of a brilliant career. Um, which reminds me, we should all congratulate her. She wasn't congratulated when she came to the podium. We should all congratulate her for her honour recently in the Order of Australia. Get back to the... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's very generous. And I've been told by the Director-General to get back to my task. And I will, because time is short. Um, so he had this disability. He, like uh, King George VI... Uh, worked with a person. He didn't overcome his stutter, uh, but he did manage it. He was, as Natter said, he was only on the peninsula for four days. Uh, but he saw a lot. He wasn't escorted by Charles Bean because Bean was sick. 
And that is incredibly important in the story of Gallipoli. The best chapter of Bean's two volumes in the official history dealing with the um, campaign at Gallipoli is in the second volume, a chapter called The Sickness of an Army, in which Bean shows that the Australian army was losing about a battalion of men a week to illness after about August uh, 1915. Bean was sick and Murdoch was largely left to his own devices. He obviously had a briefing from Bean, but Bean stayed in his bed, in his dugout. And Murdoch roamed around the peninsula. He spoke to whomever he wanted to. He was not restricted in any way. He was deeply conscious that he was the eyes and ears of the Australian Prime Minister. So all this stuff about, you know, the Ellis Ashmead Bartlett letter and the intervention of the security service in Marseille when he landed in France and all this business about, you know, was he breaking the law or not by reporting on what he had seen is, to my way of thinking, a complete nonsense. If you as an individual are given a task by a Prime Minister, you have the responsibility, in my view, of fulfilling that task. And even if you don't agree with the Prime Minister, although they were good friends, even if you don't agree with the Prime Minister, he has asked you to do something and you do it. And there was no power in the world that could stop Murdoch from sending his letter uh, back to Fisher, uh, which is what he did. It's an intriguing letter. Um, as Nat said, it was republished in a book by Alan and Unwin uh, a few years ago called The Gallipoli Letter. This is my only copy, um, so I, I would like to take it home. And you won't be able to buy it in the bookshop or anywhere, unless you get it second-hand, because Alan and Unwin, having it, it having sold extremely well, Alan and Unwin refused to reprint it, um, which was very silly, because Dame Elizabeth and I share the royalties, and uh, I would have liked to have continued on. I don't know that Dame Elizabeth needed the money as much as perhaps I did. If you look at paragraph two of the letter, uh, he says, I shall talk to you, you... Andrew Fisher, I shall talk to you as if you were by my side, as in the, good, in, in the good days, as in the good days. So he is writing personally and in a friendly tone to a man he regarded as his friend. Um, David Day describes Andrew Fisher as almost certainly the most handsome Prime Minister yet to preside over Australia. You might say he hasn't got much competition, but um, he certainly was a handsome man. And Murdoch, in fact, taught him and encouraged him to play golf to relieve the stress that Murdoch could see was building up in Fisher. Um, so he wrote a very clear account of the disaster that he believed the campaign had become. And that account was written uh, without pulling any punches. It is um, quite critical of the senior leadership on the peninsula, and in particular Hamilton, uh, and it is um, a very, very good piece of observation. He tells... He wants the Prime Minister to see the circumstances as if he were on the ground himself. Now, he came to the peninsula with a very high regard for what the Australians had achieved, and that he never resolves from that. He, he is not critical in any part of the letter 
of the achievement of the Anzacs. But he is highly critical of the leadership, the British leadership, the thinking behind the activity and what was taking place on the ground. In the very few minutes left to me, I'll now turn to the topic of today, writing the Great War. So this is what Murdoch wrote. What was its impact? Now, the publishers, um, you know, because that's what publishers do, uh, put on the cover of this very fine book, The Letter That Changed the Course of the Gallipoli Campaign. And I'm so thoroughly pleased that Professor Geoffrey Gray of the Australian Defence Force Academy is not in the audience uh, this morning. Reviewing Peter Rees's, uh, I believe, fine biography of, um, of Charles Bean recently, Professor Gray uh, uh, announced... Uh, he, he hopped into Peter Rees for even daring to mention the Murdoch letter... And he said that the Cabinet in London, quote, did not heed the views of an obscure Australian journalist, end of quote. So the letter had no influence. And in fact, Hamilton, according to Geoffrey Gray, was already going to be recalled, uh, had not yet been recalled, but was going to be recalled. And it was all down to a British officer called Guy Dornay. Well, we haven't got time to go into that. And there is quite a lot of evidence to support what Geoffrey Gray says. It's one thing, however, to have made that decision. It's another thing. It was a shocking thing to do, to pull the commander out. I mean, it could have destabilised Australia's commitment to the campaign entirely. And therefore, to have an Australian observer saying so clearly that this needed to be done would likely do two things, keep the Australian government on side and keep the Australian press on side. And that was important, and that is the reason, in my view, that um, the British Prime Minister had Murdoch's letter printed as a state paper to go to the War Cabinet because it was, if not influential in the decision-making, at least influential in communicating the decision and justifying the decision. Of course, they couldn't know that the man that was to replace uh, Hamilton... Uh, Sir Charles Munro would, in Churchill's words, uh, fine words actually, uh, Churchill says of Munro, he came, he saw, and he capitulated. Because Munro took about as long as Murdoch took to realise the game was up and that evacuation was the only plausible way of getting out of the mess that they were all in. And so, therefore, the Australians and everyone else was withdrawn and the campaign ended. I would argue that um, Murdoch's letter does have significance. And perhaps I wouldn't go as far as Alan and Unwin did, the letter that changed the course of the Gallipoli campaign. I think that might be a bit high, high but um, perhaps that's why they didn't reprint the book. They were ashamed of it. I don't know. <laughs> Charles Bean, however, writing to a fellow journalist in 1958, 1958, therefore he'd had many years, many years, to reflect on the whole campaign, and he'd written more than half a million words on the campaign in those two books that I mentioned. And in 1958, he said that Murdoch's letter was, quote, the main agent in bringing about Hamilton's fall. The main agent in bringing about Hamilton's fall. So you've got two conflicting views. Professor Geoffrey Gray, a very fine historian on the one hand, 
and Charles Bean, a very fine historian on the other. And that seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, to be the joy of history. We will never know with certainty what the influence of the letter was, but I think for Andrew Fisher it was a very good thing that it was written. Thank you. Pleasure in inviting Janet Butler to come to the lectern and speak about Kit McNaughton. Janet. There we go. Thank you very much. I found Kitty McNaughton's name, along with that of her cousin, Sadie McIntosh on the memorial gates to the sports ground in my hometown, near the Yuyang Ranges in Victoria. The two nurses were out of alphabetical order, though underneath the names of the men they had gone to serve. They were as modest in memory as I was to discover they had been in life. There is a real sense in which the tragedy and the scope and the consequences of the First World War can only really be grasped at the highest level that of the total figures of wounded, the overall schemes of battles, the collective experience that would eventually become the one story of our nation's participation in the war. Some kinds of understanding, however, require us to telescope our view down from this collective level to the level of the individual and the meaning they themselves made of their experience. Kit, as I discovered, wrote a diary of her four years at war in its pages, as in the letters and diaries of all of those inscribed on all of our monuments, lies a different kind of knowledge of our nation's experience of war. In a diary, we reveal the many different faces of ourselves. Kitty, like all of the Australian nurses, was born into a colony, in her case, a colony of Victoria, and she had those loyalties. And this is, my, this is my very favourite picture of Kitty. She was 16 years old, it's 1900. It was taken by Willits in Geelong. She was also a nurse in the first generations after Nightingale. And there's Kitty on your left, I think. Um, bottom left in her graduation photograph from the Geelong Infirmary and Benevolent Asylum, as it was then, now Barwon Health. She was also a member of the Roman Catholic minority, a farmer's daughter, an Australian in the first generations after Fed in the first decades after Federation, a member of the British Empire, and one of the first Australian women to travel officially to war. And there she is in her brand new uniform, about to embark. Kitty's images of herself in each of these roles would be expanded, conflicted, and challenged as she experienced life in the Great War. Her daily diary, recording her life in process, reveals not only what those experiences were, but also the changes in her ideas about herself and her world in her response to them. To understand Kit's story, however, I had to develop a kind of double vision. I had to read over her shoulder, watching her experiences through her eyes, but also step away and consider herself her, as she wrote them, and also cast an inquiring eye on the diary itself. Because a diary, I was to discover, is not a mirrored reflection of reality. As an early thinker about diaries, Robert Fothergill once said, 
Of all the things that happen in a diarist's day, they actually record very few. They make choices about what to record and just as importantly, about what not to. So a diary can reveal, but it can also conceal. Kit's diary was a travel diary and she received hers as a gift on the eve of her departure on board the Orsova in July 1915. And this is the first page of her diary. And I always like this particular page because it was given to the Kay McNaughton who lived in Little River, um, Victoria, Australia. This is all Kit's writing except for the, the inscription. But this is the Kit that wrote the diary, the one down at the bottom with the much stronger writing, Kay McNaughton, cabin 37, also over, and there's an underline underneath that she's off to war. In 27 days, it'll be 100 years ago since Kit wrote those words. The idea of a diary as a secret place for our innermost thoughts is a mid-20th century phenomenon. Kitty's diary was intended to be shared with her home people. We often think of the people at home and wonder what you're all doing, she wrote, after describing a concert given by the troops on board the first day out of Australian waters. And if you could only see us all doing the grand, you would know that we were enjoying ourselves. The nurses made their choices about what to say and about what not to say within an overlapping set of social rules that governed what topics women should confine themselves to, what a travel diary should contain, who their audience was, and in the eyes of their audience, what the acceptable persona of the good woman and the good nurse was. In Kit's case, there was the added complication that in 1915, the expected role of the good woman and the good nurse was one of sacrifice and quiet waiting on the home front, not active service on the battlefront. In the pages of Kit's diary, as she attended to the subjects that were expected of her, we see her reinventing herself in new roles, for example, as a nurse at war, and also pushing the boundaries of other identities in ways that her audience might accept. All the girls here smoke like fun, she wrote on reaching Egypt. Seems part of their life. In this way, she justified to her home people her own new modern habit, but her nephew did tell me that Little River did a collective faint when she came back from the First World War with her cousin and they were both smoking. She rolled her own cigarettes till she died. The topics Kit devoted herself to offer us new knowledge of and a new perspective on the war. But there's also knowledge to be found about Kit and her world in her silences, if we can identify them and understand them. Some of Kit's silences were shared with the other nurses and some were not. Some were obvious. Kit never mentioned the conscription referendums in which she was permitted to vote although it was a common enough topic in the letters of 